Chapter Four of Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey. Michael. And when God found on the hollow of his hand this ball of earth among his other balls, and set it in his shining firmament between the greater and the lesser lights, he chose it for the star of suffering. Ugo Bassi. It is better to draw a veil over the scene that followed Audrey's abrupt announcement, as Captain Burnett said afterwards. Geraldine's attitude was superb. She was grand, absolutely grand. Mrs. Ross was, as usual, a little plaintive. If you had only mentioned where you're going, Audrey, she said quietly. But you are so impulsive, my dear. Geraldine would have accompanied you with pleasure a little later, and you could have left my card and a civil message for Mrs. Blake. That would have been far nicer. Would it not, my love? With an appealing look at her young adviser. You can send a message by Mr. Blake this evening, replied Audrey. She never argued with her mother if she could possibly help it. In the first place, it was not filial, and in the second, it was perfectly useless, as there was always a mental reservation in Mrs. Ross's mind, and she could seldom be induced to decide any question without reference to Geraldine. I think father might have consulted Percival before he asked another guest observed Mrs. Harcourt in rather a dubious tone, for she was exceedingly jealous of her husband's dignity. Percival was told that we were to be quite alone. I was not going home to change my dress, but if this young man be invited... My darling, interrupted her mother, you must not think of walking back all that way. That gown is lovely, is it not, Audrey? And one more person does not signify. No doubt your father was anxious that Percival should see Mr. Blake and give him his opinion. He thinks so much of Percival's judgment, does he not, Audrey? Now here was the opportunity for a ducure, for a nicely adjusted compliment to smooth her sister's ruffled brow, but Audrey was far too blunt and truthful for such finesse. Father told me that he wanted Michael to see Mr. Blake. I don't believe he was thinking of Percival, because of course the lower school has nothing to do with Hillside. There was not the least need of changing our gown, Gage, for of course we are only a family party. Will you come up with me to my room now, or will you go with my mother presently? I will come with you, returned Mrs. Harcourt. Audrey was inclined to be contumacious, but she would not yield the matter so meekly. Audrey was always more contradictory when Michael was in the background. They seemed to play into each other's hands somehow, and more than once Geraldine was positive she had heard a softly uttered Bravo at some of Audrey's ridiculous speeches. Come along then, returned Audrey good-humouredly, and as they left the room together, Captain Burnett laid down his book. I'm afraid she's going to catch it, Cousin Emmeline. It will be a case of survival of the fittest. Geraldine is strong, but Audrey can hold her own. Bye back, Audrey. My dear, remonstrated Mrs. Ross as she put away her knitting. You talk as though my girls were likely to quarrel. Geraldine is far too sweet-tempered to quarrel with anyone. She will only give Audrey a little advice. The Audrey is dreadfully careless. She takes after her father in that. John is always doing imprudent things. Geraldine has made me most uncomfortable this afternoon. I am quite sure that Mrs. Blake will be an undesirable friend for Audrey. Do you always see through other people's spectacles? he asked quietly. I have a habit of judging things for myself. I never take anything second-hand. It is such an unpleasant idea, airing other people's opinions. 
fancy a sensible human being turning himself into a sort of peg or receptacle for other folks' theories. No, thank you, my dear cousin. My opinions are all stamped with Michael Burnett, his mark. Men are different, she replied tranquilly, and then she left him to go in search of her husband. What a world we live in, Booty, observed Captain Burnett as he walked to the window when his four-footed favorite followed him. Oh, you want to run, do? As the little animal looked at him wistfully. You think your master uncommonly lazy this afternoon? You don't happen to have a pain in your leg, do you, old fellow? A nasty, gnawing, grumbling sort of pain. There is nothing like new algebra for making a man lazy. Why, I'll make an effort to oblige you, my friend. So off you go. And Captain Burnett threw a stone, and there was delighted bark as an excited patter of the short legs and booty vanished round a corner while his master followed him more slowly. The garden of Woodcott was the best in Rutherford. Even the hill houses could not compete with it. An extensive lawn lay before the house, with a shrubbery on one side, and the trees and shrubs were exceedingly rare. A little below the house, the ground sloped rather steeply, and a succession of terraces and flower beds led down to a miniature lake with a tiny island. Here there were some swans and a punt, and the tall trees that bordered the water were the favorite haunt of blackbirds and thrushes. Captain Burnett sat down on a bench facing the water. Booty stood and barked at the swans. How sweet and peaceful everything looked this evening. The water was golden in the evening sunshine. A blue tit was flashing from one tree to another. Some thrushes were singing a melodious duet. Swans arched their snowy necks and looked proudly at him. Some children's voices were audible in the distance. There was a thoughtful expression in Captain Burnett's eyes, a concentrated melancholy that was often there when he found himself utterly alone. Captain Burnett had one confidant, his cousin John. Not that he often called him by that name. Their ages were too dissimilar to permit such easy familiarity. But he had once owned to Dr. Ross, to the man who loved him as a father, that his life had been a failure. You need a failure in the sense that you are no longer fit for active duty, had been the reply. You must not forget the Victoria Cross, Michael. Oh, that was nothing. Any other man would have done the same in my place, Michael had retorted with some heat, for he hated to be reminded of his good deeds. Perhaps he was right. Hundreds of brave young Englishmen would have acted in the same way had they been placed in the same circumstances. The English army is full of heroes, thank God. Nevertheless, Michael Burnett had earned his Victoria Cross dearly. It was one of the Zulu skirmishes. A detachment of the enemy had surprised them at night, but the little handful of men had repulsed them bravely. Captain Burnett knew help was at hand. They had only to hold out until a larger contingent should join them. He hoped things were going well. They had just driven the Zulus backwards when, in the dim light of the flickering watchfires, he saw dusty figures moving in the direction of a hut where a few sick and wounded men had been placed. There was not a second to lose. In another moment, the poor fellows would have been butchered. Calling out to some of his men to follow him, and not perceiving that he was alone, he tore through the scrub and entered the hut by a hole that served as a window. Michael once owned that he fought like a demon that night, but the thought of the fellow, helpless wretches writhing in terror on their pallet beds behind him, seemed to give him the force of ten men. He shall pass only over my body. God save my poor fellows was his inward cry as he blocked up the narrow doorway and struck at his dusky foes like a madman. More than one poor lad lived to look back on that day and to bless their gallant deliverer. No one else could have done it, sir, observed one of them, but the captain never knew how to give in. I was watching them and I thought the devils would have finished him. He staggered back once and Bob Jaggers gave a groan, for we thought it was all up with us. 
and though I would have made shift to fight before I would be killed like a rat in a hole, one could not do much with a broken arm. When our men rushed in, he was pretty nearly finished. One of the savages had him by the knees. Of course, they gave him the cross. For the matter of that, he ought to have had it before. Did you ever hear how he saved little Tom Bletchley's life? Well, I will tell you. And hereupon followed one of those touching incidents which is so frequent, and which gild with glory even the bloody annals of war. Yes, they gave him the Victoria Cross, but as he lay on his bed of suffering, disabled by cruel wounds, Michael knew that he had won it at the expense of all that men count dear. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. There were times when, in his anguish, Michael could have prayed that his life, his useless, broken life, might have been taken too. How gladly, how thankfully would he have yielded it! How willingly would he have turned his face to the wall and ended the conflict! sooner than endure the far better ordeal that lay before him, for he was young, and he knew his career was ended, and that brave soldier as he was, he could no longer follow the profession that he loved. It was doubtful for a long time how far he would recover from the effects of that terrible night. His wounds were long in healing. Principal injuries were in the head and thigh. One or two of his physicians feared that he would never walk again. The limbs seemed to contract, and neuralgic pains made his life a misery. To add to his troubles, his nerves were seriously affected, and he thought he was no coward. Depression held him at times in its fell grip and mocked him with delusive pictures of other men's happiness. Like Bunyan's poor attempted Christian, he too at times espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him and had to wage a deadly combat with many a doubt and hard, despairing thought. You are a wreck, Michael Bennett, the grim tempter seemed to say to him. Better be quit of it all. Before you are thirty, your work is over. What will you do with the remainder of your life? You are poor, perhaps crippled. No woman will look at you. You have your cross, a little bit of rusty iron, but does such empty glory avail? Your aches and pains and plenty. Your future looks promising, my fine fellow, a hero. In truth, those ten minutes have cost you dearly. No wonder you repent of your rash gallantry. I repent of nothing, Michael would rejoin in that dumb, inward argument so often renewed. If I were to come over again, I would do just the same. Greater love hath no man than this. For in his semi-delirious hours, those divine words seemed to set themselves to solemn music and to echo in his brain with ceaseless repetition. A life given, a life laid down, a life spent in suffering. Is not all the same, a soldier's duty. Shall I shirk my fate? Would it not be better to bear it like a man? And Michael would set his teeth hard, and with an inward prayer for patience, but in the struggle the man was learning to pray, girded himself up again to the daily fight. Once when there had been a fresh outbreak of mischief, and they had brought him down to Woodcut, that he might be more carefully nursed than in the town lodgings, which was all Michael Burnett called home. Audrey, who, after her usual pitiful fashion, wore herself out in her efforts to soothe and comfort the invalid, once read to him some beautiful lines out of a poem entitled The Disciples. Michael, who was in one of his dark moods, made no comment on the passage, which she had read in a trembling voice of deep feeling. But when she left the room on some errand, he stretched out his hand and read it over again. But, if impatient, thou... Let slip thy cross, thou wilt not find it in this world again, nor in another, here and here alone, is given thee to suffer 
For God's sake. When Audrey returned, the brook was in its place, and Michael was lying with his eyes closed and the frown of pain still knitting his temples. He was not asleep, but she dared not disturb him by offering to go on with the poem. She sat down at a little distance and looked out of the window rather sorrowfully. How strong she was, how full of health and enjoyment, and this poor Michael, who had acted so nobly. Audrey's eyes were full of tears, and all the time Michael was saying to himself, After all, I am a coward. What if I must suffer? Life will not last forever. By and by, Michael owned that even his hard lot had compensations. He became used to his semi-invalid existence. Active work of any sort was impossible, that is, continuous work. He had tried it when his friends had found an easy post for him and had been obliged to give it up. He still suffered severely from neuralgic headaches that left him worn and exhausted. His maimed leg often troubled him. He could not walk far, and riding was impossible. You must make up your mind to be an idle man, at least for the present, Captain Bennett, one of his doctors had said to him, and Michael had languidly acquiesced. To be a soldier had been his one ambition, and he cared for little else. He had enough to keep him in moderate comfort as a bachelor, and he had faint expectations from an uncle who lived in Calcutta, but when questioned on this point, Michael owned he was not sanguine. My uncle Selkirk is by no means an old man, he would say. An insurance office would consider his the better life of the two. Besides, he might marry. He is not sixty yet. Even old men make fools of themselves by taking young wives. It is ill waiting for dead men's shoes at the best of times. In this case, it would be rank stupidity. Then you'll never be able to marry, Michael. For it was to Mrs. Ross that this last speech was addressed. My dear cousin... Do you think any girl would look at a sickly, ill-tempered fellow like me? was the somewhat bitter reply, and Mrs. Ross's kind heart was troubled at the tone. You should not call yourselves names, my dear. You are not ill-tempered. No one minds a little crossness now and then. Even John can say a sharp word when he is put out. I think you are wrong, Michael. You are rather morbid on this point. They say pity is akin to love. But I object to be pitied, he returned, somewhat heartily. And what is more, I will commend myself to no woman's toleration. I will not be dominated by any weaker vessel, if I should ever have the happiness of having a wife. Ah, but there will be no Mrs. Michael Burnett, cousin Emmeline. I should love her as well as other men love their wives, and I should distinctly insist on her keeping her proper place. Just imagine working himself up to nervous irritation being at the mercy of some healthy, high-spirited young creature who will insult me every day with her overplus of pure animal enjoyment. The effect on me would be crushing, absolutely crushing. Audrey is very high-spirited, Michael, but I'm sure she sympathises with you as nicely as possible. We were not speaking of Audrey, were we? He replied with a slight change of expression. I think it is the Ross idiosyncrasy to wander hopelessly from any given subject. I imagined that we were suggesting an impossible wife for your humble servant. Far be it for me to deny myself comfort in the shape of feminine cousins or friends. Yes, of course. And Geraldine and Audrey are just like your sisters, Michael. Are they? A little, dryly. Well, as I never had a sister, I cannot be a good judge. But from what other fellows told me, I imagine Audrey bullies me enough to be one. Anyhow, I take the brotherly prerogative of bullying her in return. 
and with this remarkable statement, the conversation dropped. Captain Binet spent half his time with his cousins, oscillating between Woodcott and his lodgings in town. Dr. Ross wished him to live with them entirely. He had a great respect and affection for his young kinsman, and as he often told his wife, Michael helped him in a hundred ways. He has the clearest head and the best common sense I ever knew in any man. I would trust Mike's judgment before my own, poor fellow. He has gone through so much himself that I think he sees deeper into things than most people. It is wonderful what knowledge of character he has. The boys always say there is no cheating the captain. Michael owned himself grateful for his cousin's kindness, but he declined to call Woodcott his home. I must have my own diggings, was his answer. A burrow where I can return to earth when my pet fiend tends to have a fling at me. Seriously, there are times when I am best alone, and then in town one sees one's friends. For the sick man, or whatever you like to call me, my taste is decidedly gregarious. I would not shut me from my kind. Oh dear, no. There is no study so interesting as human nature, and I am avowedly a study of anthropology. Land for a man with a hobby like mine. Nevertheless, the chief part of Captain Burnett's time had been spent latterly at Woodcott.